Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode, another exciting interactive episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse with Pastor Dr. David Murphy. He's sitting across the broadcast desk from me. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan. Good evening to those who are listening to radio as well. Pastor, it hit me today as I was sitting at my desk. Christmas is three weeks from today. And that means that the end of the year is only four weeks from today. It's amazing how fast this year has gone by. It's incredible, isn't it? We are going to continue our discussion this evening on cults and on specifically the Mormon cult. Uh, Last week we were discussing Joseph Smith, the fact that he was born in the early 1800s. And at approximately 15 years old, he saw a lot of strife between the different denominations and the different clergy of the different churches that led him to experiencing anxiety about what church he should join. And soon after that, he was reading his Bible, uh, had the thought that he should go out in the woods and pray. And as he was doing that, he had a vision. Uh, During that vision, Uh, He says that the Father and the Son, referring to God, appeared to him, and the Son told him not to join any of the churches because all of the churches had apostatized. And Pastor discussed that last week, how that uh, could not be true based on uh, Scripture. And then he later had a vision uh, in which an angel appeared to him, Moroni. Was that the correct name, Pastor? Correct, Moroni. And that angel gave him some uh, spectacles, some golden tablets, and he translated the Book of Mormon from those golden tablets. Uh, The Mormon Church, Mormon cult, is also known by the name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And something I found interesting, it's one of the wealthiest cults in the world with total assets of over $40 billion. We also discussed the Book of Mormon, and we're going to pick up this evening with the discussion. Pastor, I have found myself referring over the last couple of weeks to the Mormon cult as the Mormon Church. By doing so, am I legitimizing their religion? Because I know when we first started talking about cults, you were saying they often try and fly under the radar as a Christian entity. So by calling them the Mormon Church, am I legitimizing them? I'm not too sure if the fact that you're using the word church um, legitimizes the the Mormon movement. I would not myself uh, describe them as a church because uh, clearly this is a a radical group. This is a, um, a cultic group. 
the dogma and the teachings that they are advocating are so contrary to Scripture. Um, so I, I would desist from using that particular term. Um, and they themselves don't even call themselves a church. They call themselves a stake. Oh, okay. I didn't so, realize yeah. that. So, um, a stick. Stick. Oh, stick. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's what they call uh, the local assembly. And the local pastor is a bishop, basically. So I, um, I don't, not one inclined to use the term church to describe them because their doctrine is so contrary to Scripture. Uh, it's hard to see how um, you can take that particular term and apply it to the Mormon church. Before we go any further in our discussion, and I know I've asked you this a number of times since we've been discussing cults, but if you can just remind me, why is it that we're discussing cults? Are you trying to tear down these other religions to make yourself feel good? Uh, I hope the audience doesn't think that way. Uh, we've embarked on a program basically to try to deal with issues and look at religious um, groups and try to provide biblical answers to questions that people are asking. We have a legitimate task to do because the Bible tells us that we must examine the spirits and we must try uh, the spirits. And I think everybody's aware that everybody can't be right. Um, the divergent doctrines that people hold to and different religions hold to, different teachings and practices that they, they uh, um, um, use, clearly um, everybody can't be right. But what we are here trying to do is basically to examine uh, different uh, groups that have different beliefs, explain to the public what those beliefs are. And by the way, um, I am going to stay, stay by any comment I've made on the radio. Um, if anybody has a dispute with that, uh, I can authenticate where I've got my information from, and I'm prepared to stick behind what I've said. Um, let me just say this as well. I would not be at all a um, appalled if anybody wanted to examine the Baptists, what the Baptists believe. I mean, I want people to know what we believe. So I, I would think that any religious group should want the public to know what they really believe. And we're not here trying to um, teach anything that is contrary to what those different groups hold to. We just explain to the public what they believe. And if we think that it's contrary to Scripture, we're clearly pointing out that it's contrary to Scripture. Wasn't it Paul that encouraged the was the Bereans? He commended them for uh, comparing everything that yeah. he said. You remember the Apostle Paul when he went to Berea, uh, he started preaching. And the Bible says that they examined what Paul was saying, whether those things were true. And that is they were comparing Paul's uh, teaching with Scripture to see if they aligned with Scripture. And that has always been the biblical model of what Christians are supposed to do. Uh, we're not just supposed to depend on the pastors or the popes or uh, leaders to, to give us information. Our job is to examine whatever any religious leader is saying in relation to Scripture and see if it aligns with Scripture because the final authority is not a man. The final authority is God's Word. And that is a standard by which we judge every religious movement, uh, whether Baptist or non-Baptist. It doesn't matter. Last week you were discussing the Book of Mormon and the Holy Books, uh, the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And they also have Joseph Smith's inspired translation of the King James Bible. Can you share a little bit more about that and maybe what he, are some things that he changed? Yeah, well, this is the the one of the um, surprising things about the, the Mormon group, that they are supposed to hold to the King James Bible, uh, but they say in so in so far as it's properly interpreted, uh, they believe it has been tampered with, 
They believe that certain things were left out, and the Book of Mormon is given to uh, reinstate those things that were left out and missed out in in the King James Version. But what is interesting when you look at the Smith's inspired version is how he, some things that he says in, 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 uh, for example, let's take the Book of Genesis. Uh, In Genesis 3, 1 to 5, you have the story of Satan coming before God and offering to be sent into the world to redeem mankind. Uh, but when, only if God would honor him, but when this offer is refused, you've got Satan rebelling against God. So it's not out of pride that he's rebelling. I mean, you think about that in relation to what the Bible teaches. Yeah. And that is so alien to the content of Scripture. One wonders how any other uh, religious movement could actually embrace that concept and still claim to be following the the the, uh, the holy to the King James version, but you must remember that the Mormons believe in continuous revelation. In other words, revelation did not end with the completion of the Bible, the Book of Revelations, um, and is not even ended today because the president uh, of their um, their movement he is a seer, he's a prophet, so he can receive revelation even today. That is why you can find in the Book of Mormon and also the the Covenants and the other writings that they have that they may reveal something today that even contradicts that. They don't have a problem because it's no revelation. So um, it, it creates a dilemma. Where can there be absolute certainty? They cannot be because it's ongoing revelation. From a biblical standpoint, if you have someone telling you there is still ongoing revelation, how do you defend from a biblical standpoint that, that this is God's final revelation? I'm holding up the Bible. There are two texts that I normally use. Uh, Jesus said, all that came before me were what? Thieves and robbers. So anyone coming before him claiming to be the final word of God basically is a thief and a robber. The other verse that I use is, is uh, Hebrews. God who at sundry times and divers manners spoke in times past to the fathers, unto the fathers by the prophets, half in these last days spoken to us by his son. So the final voice in these last days is Jesus Christ. So I take those two verses, anyone that came before him claiming to be the, the one, as it were, thieves and robbers, and then God has spoken finally in these last days in his son. Those are the two verses I use. The other thing is I would challenge anybody to read um, Genesis and read Revelations. It is so clear that they dovetail into them, uh, told them dovetail, that whatever you find in Genesis, uh, you find it repeated in Revelation, but completing. So you've got the garden, uh, you've got the tree of life, that's repeated in the in the book of Revelation. It's like reading the introduction to a, 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 a story, which creates the mystery of all that has happened, the, the tragedy and the etc. And then you come to the end of Revelation, it now finalizes everything and brings everything to a conclusion. Uh, so I, I uh, those are two verses I use, and I think if you would use the book of Genesis and Revelation, see how it dovetails, I think you come to that conclusion as well. The other thing I would uh, say to people is that once you open the door for new revelation, it never ends. Think of every single cult you can think about today. Uh, Muhammad claimed that um, Gabriel came to him and, and told him the things that he wrote, except that's how you got the, the, the Islam. Uh, Joseph Smith is saying an angel come. The Seventh-day Adventists saying that Ellen G. White uh, received special revelation, etc. And this guy, Hiram, went, uh, saw in the third heaven, uh, went to, uh, saw in he- heaven, 
where uh, Christ moved from one area to the other. Uh, Sun Mon Yun yeah. is claiming to be the new Messiah, that Christ was a failure, and now he's the final voice. Where does it end? It, it, it opens the, the, the door for uh, more religions to come online, so there's no finality to this whole thing. And um, so I, I think if you want certainty and you want to avoid confusion, uh, you've got to go to the Scriptures and um, find out what Christ said. His opinion of the Old Testament is very clear. He believed it was infallible, it's authentic. He believed he accepted everything, even things that people question today, like Noah's Ark, uh, Jonah in the, in, in the fish, etc. He endorsed all of those. Marriage, he endorsed uh, the creation of man. All of that he endorsed. And then he said that he was going to send his Holy Spirit to bring to the disciples' memory all that he wanted them to read. So you've got the Old Testament supported by him, and the New Testament will be written supported by him outside of that. There's no more revelation from God. You're listening to That's Truth, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The voice you are listening to is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, and he is here to discuss in further detail the Mormon cult this evening. Pastor, you were talking about uh, Joseph Smith's Yeah, uh, let, let, me, let me continue with that. In Genesis 6, um, 67, this is his translation, Adam gets baptized by immersion. <laughs> I mean, it's so comical. Uh, I wonder sometimes how serious people can be to follow a, 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 a character of this nature. Um, I think it is either willful blindness or just satanic blindness. But mm. the humor of that is, is, uh, is almost comical. Also in Genesis 6, um, uh, 26, uh, 7, 78, Enoch, uh, is not only the one that's translated, but a group of others saints are translated with Enoch as well. You mean that they didn't die? You're right. They were yeah. translated like Enoch was told. And then in Genesis uh, 2, 6, and 9, this is where we learn that man existed in a pre-existent form as a spirit. Uh, in in the uh, Mormon, the, um, his translation. And in Genesis six fifty seven. Uh, we learned that if man did not sin, he would not be able to propagate. So the fall was a good thing. It was not a bad Say thing. Say that again? I said, if man did not sin, he would not have been able to propagate. He would not be have children. So wow. therefore, the fall is a good thing uh, as far as the Mormons are concerned. If the fall did not take place, we would not be able to be exalted and become gods. So it's a good thing. As part of the divine plan, uh, as far as the Mormons uh, are concerned. Wow. We also learn in Genesis seven ten that the children of Canaan um, were made black because of a curse of sin was put upon them. See, this is the racial element that you'll find in the Mormons. As a matter of fact, um, the reason why blacks are black is because in their pre-existent state as spirits, they rebelled against God and God cursed them and turned them black. Remember that uh, as for the the priesthood was uh, not available to black people until 1978. It's then that they opened the priesthood, but they could not be part of the priesthood. And as far as 1976, one of their bishops was uh, defrocked because he had ordained a black person as a priest. So it has racial elements, and you, if you go back to that period of history in the, in the 1830s, 1820s, you'll just understand why those kind of things would would have been going on. And then another thing I would like to say that in Genesis uh, 50, the prophet Joseph Smith himself 
is one that's going to come. And let me read what it says, right? It says in Genesis fifty thirty three, And that seer will I bless, and his name shall be called Joseph, and it shall be after the name of his father. For the thing which the Lord uh, shall bring forth by his hand shall bring my people unto salvation. Exact quotation from his new translation. So, uh, for what it is worth, I just quoted those so that the audience would understand that we're dealing here with a quack. And that's just the book of Genesis. This is just the book of Genesis. This is a person that um, I have no doubt in my mind that he was deluded, maybe had visions of grandeur. Uh, I, I don't have any... Um, question that he actually had some experience. But again, Satan displays himself as an angel light, Paul tells us. Mm. So, um, this guy is clearly uh, out the pale of biblical Christianity and he's been able to found a movement that is the largest cultic movement in the world today. Phenomenal growth. And I, myself, am am bamboozled as to how anybody can entertain uh, this man was a prophet and uh, God has spoken to him and given him new revelation uh, for this age. You're listening to That's Truth, and we're discussing the Mormon cult. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp that's come in from Param. It says, good night. First of all, what is an occult church? Well, an occultic church basically is a church that teaches um, doctrines or practices or ordinances that uh, are contrary to what the Bible teaches. Um, normally, it it has some extra source of authority, uh, and it involves practices that are generally speaking occultic, like visions, dreams. Um, uh, you might have some strange beliefs, ordinances, etc. But it is on the dark side, and it's it's not. Once it is contrary to Scripture, uh, we've got to believe that the it's an infernal spirit that is pushing this particular teaching. Remember that we are in a spiritual battle. Uh, your battle, uh, and this battle is about truth, truth that God has revealed in His Word, and falsehood that is being pushed by an infernal spirit who is at war with God. So when you find a religious group is teaching something contrary to Scripture, you can mark it down behind that movement there are evil spirits that are trying to uh, mislead people. Paul talks about doctrines of demons in the book of Timothy, and he warns that in the last days that this would be one of the phenomenons, and I think it has come to pass, and we're witnessing it even before our eyes today. This is a follow-up question from the same individual in Param. Second, I am a born-again Christian. I am also divorced. I have been talking to a guy... Yesterday he told me the Spirit of God told him that I am his queen, and anyone who gets close to me, they will die. And if my ex-husband and I reconcile, it will not work. I need some advice, please. My advice to you is to just um, let the guy go. Uh, uh, Clearly, he is misleading you. Uh, The mere fact that you are indicating that there is some desire on your part to be reconciled with your husband is exactly what you, I would advise as a pastor. God intended marriage to be permanent. And I, um, uh, the Bible says that um, God is not for divorce. And I will counsel any person who's got a rift between themselves and their wife or their husband to try to seek reconciliation. 
I have said this to people who have tried to help in that regard. I think one of the greatest needs of the church today is to see, and I, uh, when I, when I, let me explain what I mean. Uh, we need to see marriages healed and to show people that even though a marriage might be fractured, it can yet be restored. The biggest problem that I have as a pastor is not being able to point to other people who have gone through marital problems, uh, maybe separated, and then being able to reconcile and create a beautiful marriage. I would, I would hope, madam, that that would be what you would want. Uh, so I'm not too sure what church you're going to, but if I were your pastor and you were to be reconciled with your husband and create a beautiful marriage, you would be my exhibit number one, and I would use you again and again, and it will open tremendous doors for you. So this man, whoever he is, uh, he is not speaking the mind of God. Clearly, um, he um, is misleading you in this regard, and he is not the voice of God. You seek God's will, and you seek God's mind, you seek go into God's word and let God lead you. Don't be led by uh, some fanatical person who is trying to use religious talk in order to bamboozle you to surrender to him. My advice to you is to stay away from him. Be reconciled to your husband. Get your pastor. Get somebody else to meet with you together and try to heal the marriage and create the marriage and make it something beautiful. Uh, that would be my counsel to you. If you're looking for a good Bible-preaching church, again, we're not trying to draw you away from your church here in Antigua if it's a Bible-preaching church, but if you're looking for a good Bible-preaching church, we'd encourage you to visit Grace Baptist Church uh, in Gambles Terrace. The Sunday morning service is, Sunday school is at 9 o'clock, service is at 10 a.m., and the evening service is at 7 p.m. Pastor, the Mormon church, members of the Mormon church are required my understanding is they're required to give 10% of their earnings to the church. Would it be biblical if you were to go into your church and say, "We are you are now required as a member of this church to give 10% of your gross income? Well, I know some churches as well that actually give you a form, you fill out what your name, and they keep a tab of that, okay? Um, I think giving is a matter between an individual and God. Uh, I would not be as a pastor want to mandate that even the people at Grace Baptist Church that they have to tithe. Uh, this is the matter between the individual and God, and uh, I know it uh, it would lead to, to tremendous wealth as it is there in the connection to the Mormons. Yeah. But giving is a matter between the individual and the Lord, and uh, while um, we should give, no doubt about that. I think it should be left uh, to the freedom of the individual and not to be imposed by the church as some kind of a legal matter. I think that that is going beyond the the norm. Uh, Paul said, let every man lay aside the Lord has prospered him. Uh, no way do you find in uh, Paul's teaching that he mandates, put aside 10%, so when I come, that's not what he said. So I don't want to go beyond what the Bible has said. Uh, said, has said about this matter, and I don't think it is right and proper to, to put that kind of imposition on members within the church. Let's transition to speaking about some of the doctrines or errant doctrines of the Mormon cult. Uh, you touched on this last week, but let's start with God. Okay. Uh, what, what's their view on God? Well, virtually, uh, their teaching on God is shocking. To, be, to say the least, um, 
first of all, the God of planet Earth, Jehovah, or Elohim, he is not the only God in the universe. There's a God above him. And Elohim uh, became God because Elohim was a man like you were. Uh, he has evolved, and he has progressed. So what we are going through right now, Elohim once was like us. He's a man, and he progressed and progressed and progressed until he became exalted as a god. Um, we are headed in that direction as well. So one day, we too, if we progress and obey the lords and the Mormon church and the ordinances and follow all of that, we too will become gods like uh, Elohim. So their god is a god who is an evolved man that now he elevates uh, to this supreme position. As he is right now, he is a man just like you are, but he is a God-man, as it were. He is now God, but he's, he has a form like you. If you saw God, now you see a, a man like you are a man. This is so contrary to Scripture. Um, the Bible said God is a spirit, but the Mormons teach that God is a man. Uh, he has a shape of a man. He's a physical being. Not only that, that God has limitations because he's confined to a body. God cannot be every place at the same time. He's not omnipresent. Uh, not, he doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient either. Uh, so this is a strange doctrine, a strange teaching, but this is exactly what is taught by the Mormon Church. So then are they worshiping him as God? Yeah, they're worshiping him as God. Uh, but again, remember that um, part of becoming uh, a God yourself has to do with your adoration and worship of the God who's already ascended there. Um, so it is it is weird doctrine, to be very honest with you. Uh, I cannot conceive of God being like I was a man <laughs> and mm -hmm. eventually evolved to become God, and he's a God in the form of a man. So when man was created in the image of God, they literally believed that God is a man and an image, and we got the image of God. So it's a very physical religion, also very polytheistic. Uh, we believe in the Trinity, that there's one being expressed in three persons. There's one God, but there's Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a great mystery. We cannot, this is not something we can totally comprehend how this can be, but this is something revealed to us in the Bible. God the Father is called God. God the Son is called God. God the Spirit is called God. They all have the same attributes. So it's not something that we concoct. It's something we find there. Now, it may even trouble us intellectually and even our reason, but this is something revealed that we accept, and we don't try to try to bring it down to the point where we can totally explain it in this, in this totality because we can't. It's just something revealed to us. So we accept what is revealed to us. The Mormons had difficulty in that. So they have separate, the, the Father is one, the Son is one, they're separate entities altogether. You've got three gods. But they're more than just three gods. There are other gods in, in the stars uh, who populate the stars. I mean, it's a weird, it's, it's a polytheistic religion, right? But has um, given God physical features and factors. Uh, but that is the doctrine of uh, the Mormon Church, which, again, uh, I find it difficult to believe that anybody who reads the Bible could ever entertain that this could be true. It is so alien to what the Bible teaches on these matters. You were referencing that we are created, they claim that, 
God has the same physical being that we do. We were created in the image of God. What do they believe about creation? Let me just read something, yeah. uh, uh, Nathan. Um, this is what Joseph Smith said, and I quote, If the veil were rent today, and the great God who holds this world in its orbit, and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power, was to make himself visible, I say, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in a form. Thus, the exact quotation from uh, Joseph Smith himself. So it's staggering uh, that he would uh, make those kind of statements, but yet um, people have embraced it. And as I said, this is the largest cultic movement in terms of growth. And I am completely uh, puzzled how anybody with the freedom of knowledge of the Scriptures could ever entertain the thoughts that uh, this man shared about God. Uh, Jesus as well, by the way, um, he has a body as well. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that doesn't have a body. He is in spirit form. Uh, But again, this is confusing again, because all, all gods are elevated men who become human forms. That's why you're God. But how come the Holy Spirit then is not a man? So the the religion is totally confusing, and uh, one finds... uh, But again, if you're teaching something contrary to Scripture, it's not surprising that you would come up with such cross doctrines, uh, etc. So you should expect uh, uncertainty and ambivalence and and, um, confusion. That's one thing that has struck me as we've been going through different cults is, man, if I was trying to come up with a new religion and weave it into the Bible or weave it into different books... Can you imagine the complexities of trying to get everything to match up right, whether it be in the past or whether it be the present or future prophecy? There's only one answer to deal with that. It's to say that revelation is not closed and, you know, getting new revelation. Yeah. And that's exactly what Smith did. Uh, Very smart. What do they believe about the doctrine of creation? Would they hold to six literal days like you and I? Yeah, but the, the, the difference between the, the Mormons in relation to uh, creation is that uh, God created this world out of material that already existed. Now, the creation, um, the church has always had that God created ex el nihil out of nothing. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the Mormon church teaches. It teaches that what he found material and God organized the material and created planet Earth. Not only that, God did not create time and matter out of nothing. Uh, he worked with matter and spirit that was already in existence. So there was something pre-existing to God, which again is totally incredible to believe. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that God is eternal and that God created the universe and created the heavens and the earth. The Mormons, on the other hand, are teaching that it was pre-existent material that God used uh, to create, uh, crea- uh, to create um, the world. So they are um, divergent from the Christian faith and uh, contrary to the biblical teaching on uh, the creation. You referenced earlier uh, that they almost exalted Adam and praised Adam for having sinned, Yeah. whereas the Bible, my understanding of the Bible, is that sin is never encouraged or condoned. Uh, I found that very... Very eye-opening. That is one of the shocking things, again, about uh, how this religion uh, could a- actually have been um, followed by people. Because the the biblical doctrine about sin is that sin is a tragedy. 
I mean, however you read the Bible, sin is not something that um, um, that something that we should embrace and rejoice over. It was a tragedy that man disobeyed God, and the Bible presents it that way. There was a disobedience that brought sin into the world, and that it was contrary to God's intention. Man deliberately sinned. Uh, so I am I'm puzzled myself to, to, to see how a cultic group uh, could gain such traction with the public, but yet embrace such strange, weird doctrines that seem contrary to the Scriptures. With that complete contrariness to Scripture and encouraging sin or praising uh, Adam's sin, would that, in your mind, make it more likely that there was uh, satanic influence in Joseph Smith creating this religion? I have no doubt in my mind that there's a master mind of deception behind the Joseph Smith story. Um, I, I, when I read his doctoral teachings and uh, other things that the group have st- taught, there's no question that there's an infernal spirit behind this entire movement. My problem is how can intelligent people embrace this kind of doctrine having been exposed to the Bible? And I have said this in more than one time on the program. Uh, when you begin to study cults, you must come to one conclusion, that there is such a thing as spiritual blindness. And I believe that people can be blinded uh, to the truth. And I think these cultic groups like this are clearly blinded to the truth. And and a lot of times they were, these people have been exposed to the truth. Uh, Thessalonians talks about that because they would not receive the knowledge of the truth. God would send them a strong delusion. And I do do believe that. uh, By the way, I did a little bit more study about this time. I discovered that this was the second, during the second awakening, was a tremendous movement with Finney, Charles Finney, revivalists. And uh, the only problem is Finney's movement created confusion because people had not seen revival like that before. Even when people were um, uh, slain, what they call slain by the Spirit, there were Mm -hmm. unusual things that were happening. People were barking like dogs. People were falling down in a frenzy, foaming at the mouth. This created some kind of confusion. And I suspect that Smith uh, saw that and became aware of that and became confused himself. But I always like to say that, always remember that there's a mastermind trying to deceive the human race. And I can see a young boy, 14 or 15, disillusioned, not too sure. I can see him being a ploy that can be used. And, uh, and clearly, the enemy did use him to create a rival religion that now competes with Christianity. And uh, it's not only a distortion of Christianity, it's something outside the people, but it yet um, is viewed as a Christian denomination, which is tragic. You mentioned last week that he was involved in using a peeping stone for yeah. uh, an occultic tool for uh, finding hidden treasure. Should that not serve as a warning to uh, individuals today that you can't toy with with uh, things of the occult? Yeah. Well, I think um, that is a clear indication of the danger of dealing with occult practices. And one thing I think is very significant is that there's something called transference in occult practices. And uh, Joseph Smith sealed this whole thing up because uh, 
he and his father were always searching for treasure using these peep stones, right? This is, a, and uh, he's supposed to use this peep stone to help translate the Book of Mormon uh, into English. Uh, I was just reading uh, on him that when he was translating, the other guy he was not allowed to see, he put a, a rope across and put a blanket. So he's on one side, and the other guy's on the other side. There came a time when uh, there was a um, court case with about the same Mormon book, and the guy said, he was asked by the lawyer, did you see the book? He said, I saw it by faith. <laughs> I mean, it's so comical that I'm reading, I'm, I'm almost bursting out in, uh, in laughter yeah. to think that, how can people be so silly? Yeah. But um, anytime you're dealing with it, and the other thing, well, I was about, my, point, my point was to make this transfer, the thing about it is that he was ordained by Cowdery with the Aaronic priesthood and the um, John the Baptist, and uh, not John and Peter James, John gave him the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, the priesthood must be carried on from him, and it can only be by the laying on of hands. This is called transference. So if you've got a person who's involved in occult practices and is actually demonized, that transference is transferred from one person to the other. There's a book in the CLC that probably people should read. It's called The um, Kongs in the Occult by Dr. Koch. Um, he's a, a, a Lutheran pastor that did a lot of counseling with people who were demonized for about 40 years in Europe and etc. It's a fascinating book. He talks about this this ten, trend, trend of transferring. Once you're involved in in the occult and demonic and stuff like that, the laying on of hands is the transferring of that power to you. And that's why we've got to be very, very careful uh, even in some churches today, the laying on of hands. You ever notice on some television programs when the guy put his hand on it, people just fall down? Yeah. Uh, that is a cultic, and one needs to be very, very careful about these kind of things. So I'm not surprised that uh, Smith would be uh, a person who, dealing with the occult, is now introducing a cultic doctrine within the Mormon church. As a matter of fact, a lot of these symbols in the temple a lot of it is Masonic symbols as well. And they got a lot of flack for that, and they had to remove some of it. So I'm not surprised that this whole thing has the very smell and taste of the demonic. Now, am I going too far to interpret what you're saying about the laying on of hands, that if there's someone, maybe even in a so-called church, who you just are not comfortable with them laying on their hands, you have an uneasy feeling that it's okay to say, no, I don't want you to lay your hands on well, it. Of course. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I'm i very, very leery of people who want to come and pray about praying and want to lay your hands on me. I don't want that, yeah. right? Uh, I don't see any basis for any scripture. The only laying of hands is when a person is ordained to the ministry. But this idea of laying, and the things I've seen happen with people putting their hands on somebody, that they, they, electricity goes through them or they fall down and they're foaming at their mouth, they're kicking and prancing and exposing themselves on the on the uh, platform, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is total out of the norm of Christianity. This is, this is, in my judgment, something to be concerned about. And uh, not all of it is fake, but the vast majority is fake. No question about that, my man. You're listening to That's Truth, and if you have a question for Pastor Murphy, we would love for you to ask it. You can do that by calling 1-268-462-7420. 
Again, you can call Pastor Murphy and ask your question live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or if you would rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. Pastor, what does the doctrine, what does the Mormon church believe about the doctrine of man? Well, Every man existed in a pre-existent state in heaven first. Uh, man is a spirit between God the Father and God the Mother, had sexual relationships and produced spirits. So that's where a man's spirit was in heaven, as a result of copulation between the God the Father and God the Mother. And so they produced these spirit, human spirits. But for these spirits to become gods, they need to go through an experience of becoming a man and progress. So that is why uh, man was now placed in a body because he can only become God if he goes through the same press God the Father went through process. Uh, God was a man. He worked his way up until he progressed, eventually become God. And now all these spirits that he created in heaven need to become gods too. So you need bodies for these these uh, these spirits. By the way, that's why Mormons have a lot of children because their task is to create bodies for these spirits that are waiting to come to evolve to become gods. See, So they're motivated to have large families because in having large families they're creating bodies for these spirits to come that God that God has created with his, his wife up there to come, etc. Very, very strange, <laughs> strange religion. I mean... This religion seems to be obsessed with sex. Uh, <laughs> it, it does, it does. The other thing is that um, Jesus was the first spirit that God copulated with his, his, his goddess and created Jesus. And his second spirit was Lucifer. So Lucifer is Jesus' brother. As a matter of fact, we are on the same... We have the same species. Man and angel and God are the same species. Wow. Wow. All I can say is wow. That, that's that gone a long now, this is way. Shocking. Oh. Right, this is shocking. Now, here's my problem. Can a person who has knowledge of the Scriptures and understand the Scriptures embrace a, a, a doctrine or teaching like this? I mean, this is, this is, this is like um, um, Greek mythology. Yeah, this is not something that uh, you find in scripture. There's no sobering spirituality about. This is total carnality and flesh. You know, it's almost like the Muslims. It's another carnal religion. Uh, you hit jihad and you get what fourteen virgins living on a planet somewhere. I mean, it is atrocious to believe that people would entertain these kind of concepts. But this is what happens within the. Now, the funny thing about it, when you talk to some Mormons, they not even seem to be aware of it. It's as though you hear the Mormon, it's as though they're preaching Christianity. But these doctrines are things that their followers need to delve into this and find out for themselves. I can give them the sources for this information. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of shocking. Yeah, people, I th- but I think you could find people in our Baptist churches that would be Baptist in name, but when you really start questioning them on their doctrine, they really haven't delved into it on their own either. Uh, anything else you want to add about what they believe about the doctrine of man before we go to salvation? 
Well, all I would, uh, in connection with the, the doctrine of man, is that um, every one of us, we are God in miniature. So we, we, we have the potential. Now, not every man is going to become a God, because later on you discover that they've got three kingdoms. So is it only men that can become God, or can women also become a God? Men become God, but women, because they're connected with God, with the man, become goddesses. Okay. See, so the whole the whole idea of Mormonism, the ultimate goal of Mormonism, is very simple. You become a god, and you will be given. You will have a goddess, and uh, just like Elohim um, created the earth and had ch- children to become gods, you are going to do the same thing. You're going to one day become a god. You have a goddess. You have your own planet, your own little earth, and you'll produce little children, and those children will become men, and they'll evolve again. It's a, it's a cycle that goes on and goes on and goes on. So that's the ultimate goal. You have many children you want. And don't forget that when you're sealed uh, in marriage in the Mormon temple, you're sealed for life. So your wife, if you want to make sure that you and your wife be together for all eternity, you got to go into the Mormon temple and be sealed. And not only that, that includes your children, but also your extended family as well. That is why it is such a family thing. The Mormon is such an important thing because you're, you're promised that the very wife that you have here will be your future wife in the future. She'll be a goddess like you, be, and your children will, will be with you. And uh, just that you have a nice family here, you're going to have a family up there. But not only that, you're going to have your own planet, your own universe. You produce your own children. So the same thing God the Father is doing down here, the same thing you'll be doing on another planet. That is the hope of Mormonism. Do they claim that that is found in Scripture? Well, they know it's not found in Scripture. But this is something God revealed to Joseph Smith. Again, why? Because Revelation is not closed. He's a new prophet, and he's telling us things that were lost when the Bible was written. So now he's been given this information to pass on to this generation because he's now the new seer, the new prophet, and um, he's now the voice of God. And he, whatever God has now speaking, spoken to him, and this is for planet Earth today. And that is why you have the, the danger of not accepting the canon of scriptures to be closed and to be complete. The moment you open the door, that you still got prophets, you still got revelation, um, uh, inspired revelation being given to man. You've opened a Pandora's box that you can't stop. You just can't stop. And this is where a lot of these religions have started. Uh, they've gone outside the scripture. That's why the position of the church, the Orthodox Church, the fundamental church, has always been that revelation stopped when the Bible was complete. And now that the Bible is complete, we don't need any further revelation as far as Scripture is concerned. In relation to if I'm having a discussion with someone who says there is ongoing revelation and even that would supposedly contradict the Bible, how would you respond if they were to say, but God changed his mind in Scripture? Think of uh, Abraham pleading with God uh, to save Lot to mm-hmm. save uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. And God said, well, if you find this many, no, if you find this many righteous, no, if you find this many righteous, God changed his mind. So why can't God change his mind now? No, God God has always um, based his dealing with men on the basis of their repentance. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, God gives forgiveness and pardon on the basis of our repentance. 
right? And that is exactly what happened there. God has set his mind that if this place that people did not repent, he would destroy it. Forty days and then it would be destroyed. Uh-huh. Or, or yeah. in the case of uh, in the case of Sodom and, and Anna. But if they had repented, that's the basis on which he deals with men. So it's not as though that God there's a new idea for God. The basis on which God deals with us is on the basis of our repentance. A man that is a, a terrible sinner, and God said, I'm going to kill you. And that man repents. God hasn't altered his mind. He's still said, if you don't repent, I'm going to destroy you. But on the basis of your, your repentance, then I can, I, I can change my attitude towards you, my dealing with you. But my position is, the sinner who does not repent will be perished and will be, will be punished. That's the basis of what, how God deals with us. You mentioned the temple and being uh, sealed in the temple. Are there is there just one Mormon temple, uh, and what all takes place at the temple? What's the significance other than this marriage ceremony? Well, I I, I learned that the, uh, the the last statistic I got is over 145 temples all over. The Mormon religion is trying to put temples all over the world. That's the goal. Um, it's just like the Muslims try to put mosques wherever they go. And these imposing temples, by the way, they are really attractive buildings. I've seen some pictures of them. It's really astounding. They invest a lot, but again, they can do that because they own so much money. Yeah, $40 uh, billion. Yeah. And remember that the pastors are not paid, right? The, the pastors are not paid. The only people that are paid are those at the upper echelons. So all the grift that comes in, it doesn't help take care of the local pastor. It goes to the organization, and those at the top control everything, basically. So... Um, but the temple is, is there for several purposes. Um, there is the sealing of marriage we, we talked about, uh, where you can be sealed to your wife or somebody for, for, for eternity. Uh, and by the way, you, you cannot have eternal life unless you are sealed in the temple to marriage. So it's, it's mandatory. Otherwise, you're not going to the celestial heaven. You go to one or the other two, but you're not going to get the celestial heaven. Only those who are married in the temple are going to get up to the celestial heaven, so you better get married in, in the temple. <laughs> the other thing that is done in the temple is the baptism for the dead. And uh, the Mormons invest a lot of money in genealogical tables. As a matter of fact, uh, they've got one of the best systems. Mm. I think they've got, uh, last thing I heard, is over 4 billion dead people on their records. Wow. Uh, but again, there's a reason for that. The motivation for that is this. A non-Mormon... If I am a Mormon, and I have a non-Mormon in my family who died, and I want them to have a second chance, I can be baptized for them in the temple, and the spirits, Mormons who die, when they go into paradise after they die, will uh, give the message to this person, and he can decide, now he's dead, uh, that he wants to become a Mormon, and he can join me, in the celestial heaven. So I extend my family now. It's not just my kids, but I got my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother. So I begin to trace who they are and I get baptized for them so that I make sure that I can have a full, complete family. <laughs> now that's why they are so meticulous and invest so much money and have some of the best technology and being able to trace genealogies. Even the FBI and the CIA sometimes would use their, their information because they're so exact and so precise in terms of keeping and uh, documenting the, the genealogy of the ancestors. Yeah. Uh, again, all of this is like, when you compare Scripture and you see this kind of stuff is happening, you're saying, but this song more like mythology 
and maybe the occultic systems before, but how can modern people with an open Bible embrace this kind of ideology, this kind of doctrine? And that's why I think behind this whole system, there is something more than just man behind this. This is evil, infernal spirit behind uh, deceiving people. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp that has come in from Antigua. Thank you to the individual who sent it. Uh, a couple of questions. Uh, do Mormons practice polygamy? And if so, why do they believe it is okay or even good? The Church of Latter-day Saints, um, he, uh, the one that's represented here, they don't practice polygamy. Okay. But there are other branches, there are three other branches of the church that do practice polygamy today. But the Mormon church um, only stopped polygamy in order to get statehood in Utah. The government was coming down to them to uh, dismantle the whole, the whole st- because they virtually built up the state of Utah. But to get statehood, uh, they were restricted because they were practicing polygamy. And then they had this revelation, well, you know, um, uh, we, we, we don't recommend now that you do uh, polygamy. But uh, really, truth fact, when you become an exalted God, you're not just going to have one wife, you know. You have wives, because God have more than one wife, and you can have more than one wife. So polygamy is inherent in the Mormon system, but because of political pressure. That remember that Joseph Smith himself had over twenty-seven wives. Brigham Young had about fifty-five. So it, it's 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 it's, it's a part. It's just part of the whole thing. So how do you defend that you should only have one wife? Because Solomon, Abraham, uh, how do you defend that from <laughs> good a question? Uh, the problem is solved when we come to what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter nineteen. You remember when they were talking about divorce. Okay. Uh, should a man divorce his wife almost for anything? And there were two schools. Uh, one that believed a man could only be divorced because of uh, infidelity. One, a man could virtually divorce a wife even for burning his soup if he wanted to. And then Jesus is given some perspective of what God's intention was. And he said what? That uh, that God created man and woman. He brought them together and uh, they become one. So he said, uh, one man, one woman. The two became one flesh. That is the biblical standard of marriage, and that was God's original intention from the beginning. If God had intended to have polygamy, he would have created an Adam and Eve and a Jane and, a, and whatever. But the fact that God in his intent, that's why I said many times when we try to establish what was God's mind, we've got to go back to God's intent. What was God's original intent? And clearly marriage was intended between a male and a female uh, a man and a woman. The other other factor is that uh, we know that God permitted certain things, not that he approved of it, he permitted. For example, he permitted divorce, but he said he hated divorce. Um, he permitted polygamy, but it was not something that uh, he um, fully endorsed. It was something that was cultural, that was allowed. But his will has always been one man, one woman. And Christ clarified that clearly in Matthew chapter 19. He also clarified the matter of divorce, that this easy divorce, no-fault divorce thing that we have today is clearly contrary to his mind because marriage is supposed to be a permanent relationship. And the only thing that can sever that relationship is infidelity between the partners. But clearly, and he said from the beginning, it was not so that God made a man and a woman and they became two. So we've got to use... Our Lord is the final authority, 
in understanding and bringing to understand what was God's ultimate purpose and God's intent. And even if you use the book of Genesis, you can see very clearly that God's intent was one man, one woman. Uh, is it unfortunate that the, in the cultural setting that polygamy became a lifestyle and there are people who uh, within the, um, the Jewish faith embraced polygamy, but it was not something that uh, God's original intention at all. But God blessed Abraham more than, I mean, he had a promise that his descendants would be uncountable. Yeah. Uh, so how how can you say that we shouldn't practice polygamy now when God clearly blessed Abraham? You said he tolerated it. Uh-huh. Well, if he tolerated it then, why won't he tolerate it now and I can't Very live simple. a blessed life? Very simple. We don't have fullness of revelation. We have no excuse. Okay. Right? Remember, here is Abraham not, doesn't even have a Bible. None of these men had any Bibles. Right? So how are you going to judge a person on that basis? But not only that, remember that God deals with us progressively, uh, where man is. And uh, we're talking about 6,000 years ago. You can't uh, envisage the moral um, state of Abraham and his thinking and his ethics. We can't compare that with where the Christian faith has now been around for 2,000 years. As a matter of fact, what humors me sometimes is that there are people who um, want to go and say, let's get rid of the Bible. But when they come with their arguments about what's right and wrong, I say, where you get those principles from? It's the Bible that gives you those kind of principles. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of, um, it, it's kind of uh, paradoxical that people would want to get away with Scripture, the same principles that they're using are principles that they came out of Scripture. I find that kind of humorous, to be honest with you. But the thing about it is that we've got to understand that Christ is the final authority. And uh, if we want to find out, the Old Testament is now to be interpreted by the New Testament. This is the full, final revelation of God. That's why if you want to find out truth about any any doctrine, any teaching, any practice, the finality of that teaching is found in the New Testament because it's God progressively been dealing with us and now he's given us a full revelation. So we don't have to go back to those kind of uh, methods and because that was allowed, it's allowed now. Um, that is uh, not appreciating the fact that God has given us the fullness of truth, the fullness of revelation. The Son has come and told us what is God's will is. We're talking about the temple, and I know, uh, like a Baptist church, will practice the Lord's Supper. Uh, some churches practice uh, foot washing or baptism. Are there other other ordinances that the Mormon temple practices? Well, there are two types of ordinances that the um, they practice. One, which is necessary for exaltation, and that is the that's in relation to the afterlife? Yeah, okay. yeah exaltation, because only those... I mean, when we talk about salvation, we, we understand that uh, their understanding of salvation is not like our understanding of salvation. You want to go ahead and explain that? Well, yeah, their understanding of salvation that when Christ died, Christ undid what Adam's sin did. Adam's sin brought mortality. Okay. When Christ died, he now enables all men to have immortality. That's what salvation is for the Mormons. That everybody will have immortality. So he has put you in a place now where you now have, having got immortality, now you will be in a position to progress, but you have to do that on your own, in your effort. 
by uh, following the, the commandments, following the ordinance of the Mormon church, etc., etc. So the idea of salvation being saved forever, that's not conceivable for the Mormons. Where you get exalted now, you go to eternal life, is when you uh, go through this marriage ceremony within the Mormon temple. Is that you and only those people are going to get into get into eternal life. You're going to become like, like God and enjoy all the benefits that God has. The other Mormons who don't go through this process, they are not going to have eternal life. They have salvation, but they're not going to have eternal life. That's why there are different stages. But they won't go to hell. There's no hell. Well, there's a little bit of confusion as to what the Mormons believe about that. They believe that uh, it seems as though that only Satan and the sons of perdition will probably be a hell. But in most cases, there's no hell. For example, the second kingdom is for Mormons who have not been good Mormons and for non-Mormons who are good people. That's the second layer. Now, within each one of these kingdoms, you can, you can progress, but you can't progress from one level to the other. You can progress within your kingdom mm-hmm. and become better and better and better and better. And then the last one is for people who are wicked and again, um, they are not in hell. Uh, there's no eternal hell for those, those those people. So there's no real eternal hell, but they do seem to teach some area where they believe that Satan is going to be cast into eternal hell. But in terms of people, they don't go to hell. They're just going to either one of these kingdoms, and you can evolve. And move, but you can't move from the celestial king to the terrestrial king, etc. You stay within the kingdom, but you can evolve within that kingdom all the while. I, f- I find that very interesting, that this is the third new religion that we've been discussing. They all were originated in the 1800s, and they all pushed away the doctrine of hell that man would have eternal punishment uh, for his for his willful sin toward against God. Yeah. Um, the doctrine of hell is is repulsive to most most people, even myself. To be honest with you, if it was not taught in the Bible, is a doctrine I don't I wouldn't want to believe. But again, it's not because what I want. It's what God has revealed. Uh, we don't go by what I can rationalize, what I can think. Uh, how can God send somebody eternally? Again, I'm not I'm not as holy as God is. I, I can't conceive what it would be to be so holy that I can't even look upon one sin. So I can't judge God by my standard. I gotta understand that God has revealed himself who he is, and God has warned me that if I continue down this path, there's an eternal destiny where I'm going to go. And whether I like it or not, or I appreciate it or not, it is something revealed to me and I embrace it by faith that this is what the Bible teaches. Because once I surrender that the other things I got to surrender. I don't understand creation. I don't understand how God could speak the worlds into existence. It's not something I can fathom, but it's revealed to me. So I've got to accept that. I wasn't here when Christ was on planet Earth, but it revealed to me that he came, etc., etc. I've got to accept that by faith. Um, so the doctrine of uh, hell has been a doctrine that has bothered um, people for generations. And uh, they're trying to judge God by human standard. And they're probably thinking, well, I would never do that. But I'm not absolute holy. See, mm-hmm. I don't know what it is to be a holy God, to be offended. And the other thing is, I don't know all the details of how God has tried to intervene in my life and in your life behind the scenes. How many times God spoke to me? How many times God spoke to you? And I was rebellious against God. I don't know all that story, so i got to take God by faith. And the Bible says it's a hell. Whether I like it or not, there's a hell. And I preach a hell because that's what the book says. 
Anything else about their doctrine of salvation that you'd like to share? No, I just think that they need to make the disparity between salvation and eternal life. They're not the same in the Mormon belief. What Christ has actually done is to basically put man on the point where he, he, was, he was made mortal. Now by his death, he undid what, what Adam did so that now everybody will have eternal life, uh, have um, immortality. Right, that that's what his sacrifice has done, but the Mormon religion is not a, a religion that you put your faith and trust in Christ to forgive for all your sins and you become justified by, before God on the basis of faith. The Mormon religion is a works-centered uh, religion. See, you experience God brings you to the point where uh, you do as best as you can, and then God gives His grace to you after that, and then you got to work your way through. Uh, to by, and you do that by fulfilling the, the covenants, the promises, going through the Mormon um, uh, ordinances, uh, being in the temple, obeying the leaders, obeying the doctrine, etc., etc. So it's really a work-centered religion. And if you are wondering if Pastor has just uh, made that up or if it actually comes from the Book of Mormon, it does come from the Book of Mormon, and I'll read for you the Book of Second Nephi. 20, chapter 25, verse 23, says, and listen closely all the way through, For we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. For we know it is by grace that we are saved. And there's a comma. After all that we can do. And the first time that I read that uh, with Pastor Murphy the other day, it, I couldn't help but chuckle that that last phrase was there, after all we can do. And that clearly goes against salvation by grace through faith that is clearly taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, uh, and also verse 10. Pastor, we got talking about the doctrine of salvation uh, while you were explaining the two different types of ordinances that they practice in the temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Can you expound a little on those ordinances that they practice in the temple? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, the ordinances are necessary for exaltation. These would include baptism. You've got to go through the process of baptism. Uh, you've got to go through the process of confirmation. Um, after you're baptized, uh, you're confirmed by the church prayer and laying out of hands, and when they lay their hands on you, you receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's called confirmation. Then you, you also partake of the sacraments, which is like the Lord's Supper. Um, the Book of Mormon says you should use wine, but they normally use water uh, as part of the, the, the communion service. And then there's the conferral of the Melchizedekan priesthood that you have to go through. And then, of course, you've got to go through the temple marriage. So all of these are things that you've got to go. You've got to do all of those before you ever get eternal life. You're not going to get eternal life if you don't go through that process. So it's clearly works-based. It's a works. It's a mm-hmm. works-based uh, faith. Of course, there are other ordinances called ordinances for comfort and guidance. Um, these are like when your name and blessing your children, uh, administering to the sick, um, your father's blessing, blessing them for guidance and for comfort and um, even dedication of a grave. Those are other ordinances that they have. But the key one here is the one that is necessary for your exaltation to get eternal life. You have to have. You have to go through all of those. If you don't go through all of those, you're not going to have eternal life. 
WhatsApp that came from Antigua. Good night. Uh, when a person dies, where do they go, and how can I better my relationship with God? There's no need to speculate uh, what happens when a person dies. You know, it depends on who you are. Um, if you're a believer and you've put your faith and trust in Christ, the Bible makes it very clear that absent from the body is the present with the Lord. Uh, clearly, uh, when the thief was on the cross, Jesus said, Today will thou be me in paradise. So when a believer dies, he goes to be with the Lord. His body rests in the grave. Uh, his body sleeps, as it were, but his spirit goes to be with the Lord. We also know that um, when the Lord was on the Mount of Transfiguration, you had Moses and Elijah uh, who had gone off the scene for many, many years, but yet they're talking with Jesus. So clearly, uh, when a person dies, they are not unconscious. Uh, they actually exist. And they are with Jesus said uh, on one occasion, God is not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. He didn't say, I, um, I am the God, I was the God of Abraham. He said, I am the God. And he made a, he uses, used the, um, the verb, the present tense, to show that these people who are living, they're not dead. Hmm. That was the whole argument in the passage about uh, he being the God of not, he was the God of, because he's not the God of the dead, the God of the living. Believers are with the Lord, they're present with him. Now, what happens to a person who's not a Christian? Again, there is no question what happens to them. You go to Luke chapter 16, and the Bible teaches very, very clearly that a person goes to a place called Hades, right? And uh, the rich man there in Luke chapter 16, he's conscious, uh, he can talk, he can pray, but he, he's able to say again, again, I'm a tormented in this flame. So a person who dies outside of Jesus Christ will go to a place where he is tormented. Now, do I like that doctrine? Uh, would, I, would I like to? Uh, it's not a pleasant doctrine, but it is there in the Scriptures. The Bible warns us that this is what's going to happen. So my, ch- my job is not to challenge God on that. My God is to humble myself before the great God of the universe and say to him, I may not understand all of this. I may not even appreciate what's going to happen, but this is what you say, therefore I accept that this is the doctrine, this is the teaching. This is the position the church has held uh, for centuries, and uh, there's no reason to alter that position. I would just like to remind remind the person who is listening, Jesus spoke more about hell than he ever spoke about heaven, and he warned people again and again that if you die in your sin, you're not going to a pleasant place. You're going to be tormented and you're going to experience the fire of the wrath of God. That is the warning of Scripture. Whether you heed it or not um, is a decision you have to make. I thank God I've made that decision. Um, I thank God I understand that's the biblical doctrine and I have embraced that biblical doctrine. I teach it, I preach it, I'm not going to surrender it. And uh, no matter how people try to twist it, to misinterpret it or reinterpret it, uh, the Bible is very clear on the matter. The language is very, very clear. And there's no, no doubt in my mind that uh, this is what's going to happen if a person dies outside of Jesus Christ. So my answer to you, madam, is that if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, I don't know if you're going to a church currently. I don't know who your pastor is. I don't know if you're visiting a church. But if I were you, I would uh, get in contact with a pastor uh, who takes the Bible seriously and have a conversation with him 
and uh, allow him to show you from God's word what the Bible teaches in respect to the whole matter of your condition, your need, and how a person gets right with God, and what the Bible teaches about justification by faith in Christ alone. Simply put, Pastor, how does a person become a Christian? A, a person becomes a believer by repenting, first of all, of his sins and putting his faith and trust in Christ. Let me just say this. If a person is not prepared to repent of his sins, um, he can never be saved. One of the dangers that we have uh, today, I think, is offering people to just come ahead and say a little prayer. Mm. We don't discuss the matter of their sin. We don't even show if they feel any guilt about their sin, if they know what sin is. Uh, are they willing to turn away from the sin that they're currently practicing? Uh, we, 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 we seem to avoid those kind of issues. But those are issues that need to be dealt with because Jesus said, unless you repent, you're going to perish. And the Bible teaches, repent and believe. So repentance is essential to salvation. And that means I must be willing to turn away from my sin. I must be willing to put, uh, ask God for forgiveness and to tr- put my faith and trust in Him. Uh, but there's no salvation apart from repentance. So repentance and faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross who died a substitutionary death so that you may be justified before God and have a right standing with Him. And if you have any questions about that, feel free to call the radio station and we would be glad to sit down or even come and meet with you and have a discussion and show you from God's Word, the only source of truth in uh, this universe, unchanging truth, uh, and explain to you what the Bible says, even provide you with some information. How, Once a person is saved, how can they better their relationship with God? Well, there's some basic things that should be done. I, uh, the fact that you've come to faith and trust in Christ, once you've done that, now you need to grow. And uh, basically, there's one tool through which we grow. Peter says, A newborn babe desire to sincere make of the word that you may grow thereby. So just that you need physical food to nourish your physical body, a person who's encountered a new spiritual experience with Christ, they now need to grow. And the way that a person grows spiritually is to get into the Word of God. So you have to spend some time in the Word on a daily basis. The Word of God is God speaking to you through the Word. Uh, but then there's also the matter of prayer, where you now need to speak to God, bring your knees before God, uh, your temptations, your trials, even your doubts, your fears. Uh, you should be uh, into the relationship, not only your Bible study, but also get your prayer life in order. The next thing I think is vitally important is to try to find a group of believers. Uh, find a good church where the Word of God is preached, um, a church that you can visit and begin to feel comfortable with the people, the people uh, serving the Lord together, uh, you feel as though that you're welcome as part of the family. Uh, I think that would be the next thing, to try to get into a church. And then I would think once you get into a church, try to connect with some believer who can mentor you, uh, a more mature believer than you are. Generally speaking, I would recommend if you're a lady, find a senior lady in the church. If you're a man, find a, a senior man in the church who can assist you in, in, in maybe helping you with your Bible study, with your prayer life, holding you accountable etc., uh, etc. Et uh, and then, of course, as you get under the Word, the next procedure would be for to get baptized and become a member of that church. And one other thing I'd like to say to, to the person, if I may say this, I think it's important when you go into church, you try to see if you're, the gift that God has given to you 
how you can use that gift within the assembly and the opportunity for you to serve in that church. You just don't want to go into church and become a pew warmer. And that's the problem with these mega churches. You've got huge churches with hundreds of people and they're just sitting around doing nothing. Uh, you need to get in the church where you can get involved uh, in, the, in the ministry. Um, and I think those are the core things that should be necessary. So we're talking about Bible study, prayer, becoming a member of a church, uh, associating yourself with a believer who can help you and to mentor you, and um, get involved in the ministry. And one last thing, share your faith. Share your faith. Nothing will grow you more hmm. than when you have to share your faith with others. They'll ask you questions. You've got to go back and search uh, to find answers. And uh, as a new believer, if they ask you a question and you just don't know the answer, just admit, Look, I don't know the answer now, but I will sure find it out for you. But the more you get questions that um, puzzle you and create problems for you, and the more you dig and do your own research, you are going to develop spiritual muscles and you can become a strong believer. And, uh, but share your faith. And try sharing your faith with your family, um, your mom, or your brother, your sister. That's perhaps the most difficult task but it is there in the home that you will exemplify the Christian faith. So therefore, begin uh, sharing your faith with them. And um, most of your family, I would think, would have your welfare at heart. And even though they might give you some trouble sometime and uh, might um, seem unpleasant at times, maybe even mock you or, or whatever it is. It happened to me during my own experience. Generally speaking, as long as you live the life before them, you'll win them over. They'll see that you're really serious and that God has made a change in your life. You'll be a great testimony for your family. One more thing. If a person wants to leave a church, do they need to get a release from the pastor? I think it is protocol that it should be done, uh, but I don't think it is absolutely necessary. Uh, from our church, generally speaking, if a person is coming from a Baptist church, we generally request a, a letter of transferal. Uh, part of the reason for that is uh, when you leave a church, uh, you, you want to believe that you leave with a good spirit. When I say a good spirit, we don't want to bring trouble into your own church because you didn't follow the other pastor to find out exactly what happened the person left. Is it a doctrinal issue? Is it a moral issue? Is it the fact that they've got a cantankerous spirit and they just don't mesh and associate mm -hmm. with people? I think it's important to get those things established. And I think any pastor's wise that when somebody comes from another church, to at least call the pastor to find out, you know, what's happening. Um, do you have any problems? But I think it's important to do that. Otherwise, you'd be inheriting problems you wish later that you never did. But I do think it's important to at least have a letter of transfer. Pastor, we've been talking about the Mormon faith uh, can you share with me some of the prominent Mormons that we would be familiar with, maybe some names in politics or maybe in the media that we would recognize? Well, uh, we all remember Mitt Romney, yeah. who ran in 2016, uh, 12, was it 2016 or 12? I think it was 2012, 2012, I think it was. Uh, he is a prominent uh, Mormon, I think, uh, during the campaign that was raised often in the press. Harry Reid. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he's a Mormon. And uh, Hatch is also a Mormon. Okay. And then the, the uh, um, this singing group, the Osmonds, those were a singing group that was well-known in the 60s and the 70s. They're still around, mm -hmm. but they are also uh, prominent Mormons. 
those are some that come to mind immediately um, that within the, the, the Mormon movement that people are, are, are Aaron Hatch, that's his name, a senator from, um, I think it's from uh, Nevada or Utah, one of those. But those are some prominent people that um, are within the Mormon movement uh, today. I, if you go online, you should be able to Google uh, government people, Mormons who are government people, but there are a lot of Mormons in the in the government itself, uh, holding different positions. Um, I think if you read uh, Mart, uh, Luther, uh, sorry, Walter Martin's book, Kingdom of the Cults, he gives you a list of names of people who are in government, who hold prominent positions, who are Mormons as well. Um, so... Pastor, I remember hearing, uh, it was said kind of as a joke, I'm curious if it's true, about the Mormons having holy underwear. Uh, have you heard anything about that? Well, it's not just humorous, it's true. Uh, they do wear uh, um, in the temple after you've gone to the, the, the uh, temple rites. You are given um, a special underwear that you wear and uh, it has two holes by your breasts. It has a hole by your knee and one by your navel. Those are special significant marks. Um, it's believed is a form of protection, spiritual protection, but also it's also a symbol of the devotion uh, to your commitments that you made in the temple. But you use that, you sleep in it, you, you wear it. Um, you should wear it every day, 24 hours. And of course, you've got to take it off to take a shower yeah. and other things. But basically, yeah, there is, there is this, um, this... So it's a religious uh, right, religious... Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a religious symbolism. Symbolism. But it does, but, but it does, uh, they do believe that it carries some kind of spiritual significance in terms of protecting you, etc. So, yeah, Mormons uh, are known to, to wear this, this um, holy underwear. And they try to pattern it after the breeches that the... Old Testament priests would wear, so they would, they would uh, remember that they got back the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood. So uh, this is like, and don't forget that you're either belonging in the Mormon, you're either belong to the Aaronic priesthood or the Melchizedekian priesthood. So I suppose that this is like a priestly garment that you're wearing, and it offers you some measure of protection. Kind of uh, weird. And one of those unique practices within the Mormon church. Right. But it's there. Pastor, we've got just a few minutes left in the program. What What are some ways that I can reach a Mormon if a Mormon missionary comes knocking on my door or outside my gate uh, is calling to get my attention? I don't want us just to be focused on they are wrong, but how can we be fulfilling the Great Commission to reach them? What I would say is that um, when you're dealing with a Mormon or any other group, especially those groups that are um, works-based salvation, uh, emphasize strongly the grace of God when you're talking to them. Uh, because, again, in their minds, they're going to work their way to heaven. But um, talk about the grace of God that brings us salvation to all men. Talk that we are saved by, uh, by grace through faith. Keep emphasizing this teaching of the grace of God. Uh, Titus is another another great passage that you can use uh, there. So I think it's important to 
when you're dealing with them, emphasize grace. Emphasize, because they're going to emphasize works. They're going to emphasize you're doing this in the temple. You've got to keep the commandments. You've got to keep the ordinances. So emphasize grace. The other thing is focus on justification by faith. Uh, try to explain the biblical doctrine of uh, Christ's substitutionary death and, and that um, he died in our place so that we may be declared righteous before God and that his righteousness has been imputed to us. Try to explain that to them as much as possible. Um, the other thing I would say is um, let your life be the greatest witness. Now remember that most of these Mormons that come down to the Caribbean, they are clean-shaven, they seem to be very professional, very dignified, uh, very, prof- you know, Again, it's important if you're going to make an impression, uh, let your life be the impression. Uh, when you're talking to Mormon, normally he'll talk to you about uh, some, a burning in his heart. Uh, so that's how he knows the Book of Mormon is true. Well, you demonstrate that you know the Book of Mormon, the Bible is true by your life, that you're living a, a, a godly uh, Christian life. The other thing I would I'd say is to try to know your Bible well. Sure. Pastor, we have a phone call calling from Nevis. Go ahead. Real quickly, because we only have two minutes left. Good evening, sir. Um, Jesus Christ, on two occasions, referred to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as an adulterous and wicked generation. Twice he mentioned it. Paul spoke of the uh, Pharisees as being the straightest sect of their their religion. Why is it Jesus did call them an adulterous generation? Well, what's adultery? In the biblical sense of the word, adultery is spiritual adultery. And um, they were leading the people away from God. And if you read the Old Testament, uh, that is called harlotry. It is called whoredom. So when he called them a, an adulterous generation, basically this is spiritual adultery. These are these are people that uh, are moving people away from the true and the living God, and in that sense, they're committing spiritual adultery. But the other thing is that um, if you know the the, the Sadducees uh, in particular, if you're aware of their customs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, a lot of their doctrines. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits. They did not believe in resurrection. So the doctrines that they're teaching are teaching foreign and alien doctrines, moving the people away from God again. Uh, it's like uh, teaching Baalism, as it were. So when he called them an evil and adulterous generation, uh, he's no doubt referring to their spiritual adultery and moving the, the, the population and the populace away uh, from God. Thank you very much for that question. Uh, Let me just mention uh, in closing that we have a Bible study that is free and available to each and every one of you. Um, If you contact us at the Lighthouse, either WhatsApp or call, let us know that you would like the Bible study for Reaching a Mormon. And it's written by a pastor that I grew up under in the States, Pastor Dr. Marshall Fanth III. But it's free of charge. It's three parts, very easy to go through. And the whole idea is to guide you through how you can have a Bible study with a Mormon missionary. And there's uh, quotes in there from the Book of Mormon that you can then compare. And it gives you the scriptures to compare uh, to the Book of Mormon and the different doctrines. And 
next week, we will be discussing here on That's Truth another uh, religion, one that is very popular or common around many, many parts of the world. It's been around for centuries, and it's that of the Catholic Church. We'll be discussing what they teach uh, and comparing their teachings to the Bible. How do they hold up against Scripture? What is their view of God? What is their view of Jesus Christ? What is their view of communion? So be sure that you join us next week. And let me encourage you that it's not just you that joins us next week, but be sure to invite your friends, your family, whether they be here in the Caribbean or whether they be around the world to listen to That's Truth. You can join us on Facebook Live or you can listen online or on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM. Have a great evening. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.